Exactly 125 years ago, in February 1896, Theodore Herzl published his Zionist manifesto, The Jewish State. Herzl is considered a veritable Zionist icon, perhaps the greatest Zionist hero in history. The Israeli Declaration of Independence itself refers to him as the spiritual father of Israel, and Netanyahu has referred to him as the Moses of our time. But the Theodore Herzl that is presented in all Israeli schools, and for that matter Zionist schools around the world, is a total fiction. The stories of Theodor Herzl are mostly fictitious. His narrative of becoming a Zionist and his ideas about Zionism are not in tune with historical reality. He was far from a Jewish hero. And today I'm going to present historical information about the real Theodor Herzl. Welcome to Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, religion versus no religion, Zionism versus Judaism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. Herzl is said to have become a Zionist due to an epiphanic awakening because of the Dreyfus Affair. In 1894, a Jewish captain in the French army by the name of Alfred Dreyfus was falsely convicted of treason for selling French military secrets to Germany. After a long, arduous, and ugly battle, he was exonerated. But originally, he was sentenced to life imprisonment on Devil's Island. After his conviction, Herzl writes, he was paraded in public in front of a crowd that yelled, Death to the Jew. Now, these two facts are entirely untrue. Number one, Herzl did not become a Zionist because of this affair. He was fully committed to Zionism beforehand. That's not a controversial position. It's merely historical scholarship. Hank Overberg suggests a less idealistic possibility for the starting time of Herzl's book, The Jewish State. His father-in-law died on January 3rd, 1894, leaving him with quite a large inheritance of a quarter million guilders, which left him with financial independence and a lot of time on his hands to devote to his political activity. I would suggest something else. And this is pure speculation, but it fits in with the pattern of Herzl's behavior. Herzl was a drama king. He was into theatrics, emotions, demagoguery. In fact, Herzl said that the way to get the masses to accept Zionism was not on an intellectual basis, not in the marketplace of ideas. Instead, Herzl used symbols, icons, theatrics, and emotional appeal to rally the Jews to the Zionist cause. The same methodology used by so many despots before and after him. Here's a quote. This is what he said in a letter to Baron Hirsch, June 3rd, 1895. Quote, For a flag, men will live and die. It's indeed the only thing for which they're ready to die in masses if one trains for it. Believe me, the policy of an entire people, particularly scattered all over the earth, can only be carried out with imponderables that float in thin air. Do you know, Herzl asked, what went into the making of the German Empire? 
dreams, songs, fantasies, and black, red, and gold ribbons, end quote. Herzl wanted to build the following for Zionism in the same way the German Empire built their following on dreams, songs, fantasies, flags, and ribbons. At the first Zionist Congress that Herzl held, the representatives arrived in formal dress, meaning tails and white ties. This was Herzl's style. Also, he had some kind of strange dreams to be the Jewish Messiah. Herzl himself was described by his followers at the First Zionist Congress at, quote, a royal scion of the son of David, risen from the dead, clothed in a legend of fantasy and beauty. Now, Herzl encouraged this type of image that people had of him, this, this larger-than-life messianic image. He actually said that he was excited by the Messiah legend. He claimed that he had a dream when he was 13 years old that the King Messiah took him up in his arms to the heavens where he encountered Moses. And in this dream, the Messiah, echoing the words of the biblical Hannah to her son Shmuel, told Moses, quote, it is for this child I have prayed, meaning for Herzl. To the 13-year-old Herzl, the King Messiah reportedly said, quote, to him, Go declare to the Jews that I shall come soon and perform great wonders and deeds for my people and for the whole world. With such an imagination and fantasy for playing the part of a biblical character, it would not surprise me if Herzl claimed it was the Dreyfus trial that set him on his roads to quote-unquote save his people in order to portray himself as a personality similar to Moses who first set out on his career to redeem the Jewish people when he saw, as the Bible said, an Egyptian man striking a Jewish man. Secondly, the way Herzl recorded the Dreyfus affair, he lied about the most important line. In almost all history books used in Israeli schools and Zionist schools throughout the world and on websites, it's commonly accepted as axiomatic that after Dreyfus was convicted, when they paraded him around in public, the crowd yelled, death to the Jew. But that didn't happen. Herzl wrote that it did in his essay called On Zionism in the North American Review in 1899. The mob chants, death to the Jew or death to the Jews. But what really happened is they yelled death to the traitor, not death to the Jews. How do we know that? Because the reporter that covered the Dreyfus event, one of them, was Theodore Herzl. And in his article on January 6, 1895, in the New Free Press, he wrote that the crowd chanted death to the traitor. And yes, he changed his story five years later, which made it much more dramatic and much more support for the cause of Zionism. Now, Shlomo Avineri says that it's possible that he didn't purposely lie. He just forgot what he wrote five years ago regarding the climax of the story that was so important to him. And we don't know whether he lied or 
He just made a mistake, misquoting himself. Regardless, even though today we know what the real version said, in almost all Zionist literature, textbooks, you name it, Herzl's fake version, Death to the Jews, or Death to the Jew, is used. And that's what today's legend says. Next, Herzl's attitude towards the Jews. Zionist legend says that Herzl loved the Jews so much, he, he worked so hard to help his people. Really, Herzl's attitude towards the Jews was far from friendly. In 1883, Herzl described in a letter a meeting with the grandfather of a friend of his, quote, he was an old Polish-Jewish boar with a dripping nose. In 1885, he was invited to the home of Emil Tritel, a wealthy business friend of his father's and a so-called patron of the arts. He describes the evening to his parents, quote, Yesterday, a grand soiree at Tritel's, around 30 to 40 ugly little Jews and Jewesses, no consoling sight. In the same year, he writes to his parents from Belgium, quote, Although there are many Budapest and Viennese Jews here, the rest of the vacationing population is very pleasing. A letter from France in 1891 was similarly disparaging, quote, Besides the really refined people who do not create much of a noise, you see a bunch of Jews from Pest, Vienna, and Berlin. Herzl mocked Jews. He laughed at Polish Jews in aptitude with the German language. He referred to them with the pejorative Polacks. In a poem, Herzl mocked the family names of his fellow Jewish students. One of the names he mocked, Abelis, was the maiden name of his own grandmother. Herzl noted in 1894 the Jews, quote, had taken on a number of antisocial characteristics in the ghettos and the, the Jewish character was, quote, unquote, damaged. Historians and biographers of Herzl spend time to explain Herzl's obvious anti-Semitic attitudes. Jacques Kornberg, one of the important Biographers of Herzl quotes historian Sander Gilman, who describes, quote, a psychological phenomenon whereby members of a minority transfer the negative traits attributed to them to a subgroup of their own kind. In so doing, they strive to identify with the majority and distance themselves from the defects attributed to the minority, end quote. Kornberg says that Gilman's analysis can be applied to Herzl's attitude of East European Jews. In other words, Herzl was affected by a damaged self-image created by anti-Semitic stereotypes in his day, and he reacted to it in an unhealthy manner by saying, yes, yes, it's true, Jews are like that, but not Jews like me. The Eastern European Jews, the religious Jews, those guys are like the Polish Jews. They're like that, but not me. Herzl was interested in Zionism. In order to change the Jewish people, in order to rid them of their Jewishness, actually, and to become normal like the anti-Semites demanded they be. In fact, in Herzl's version of the Jewish state, you could hardly recognize anything Jewish, even according to the Zionist version of Jewishness. The language that they would speak in Herzl's Jewish state was not Hebrew. And I'm not saying that Zionist culture or 
Jewishness is authentic Jewishness. It's not. It's an engineered synthetic uh, culture that they call Jewish. But not even that did Herzl have. Another Zionist, Usher Ginsburg, also known in Zionist circles as Achad Ha'am, phrased it this way. He said, Herzl wanted to create a state of Germans or Frenchmen of the Jewish race. Jewishness, either religious or secular, would play no role in the state. Jews would be allowed to practice their religion in the state, as would Christians and members of other religions, but they would be no different than any other religion. Judaism would not have any special status in the Jewish state. Now, while it's true that in the Jewish state, the so-called Jewish state and Herzl's vision, they would not be speaking Hebrew, they also would certainly not be speaking Yiddish. Quote, we will give up those miserable, stunted jargons, Herzl wrote about Yiddish and those dialects, those ghetto languages which we still employ, for these are the stealthy tongues of prisoners. End quote. Another theory for the reason of Herzl's anti-Semitism, and, and it wasn't only Herzl, the early Zionists all shared these anti-Semitic views of Jews, is provided by one of Israel's major historians of Zionism, Anita Shapira, who says the Zionists were influenced by the nationalistic attitudes prevalent at the time. Quote, the Jewish nationalist movement, meaning Zionism, drew its ideas and measures of what is exalted and what is debased, what is honorable and abominable, admirable and loathsome, from the conceptual world of European social and national movements. This rich reservoir also served the anti-Semitic movements. It appears that anti-Semitic stereotypes and tropes did nourish, to a certain degree, the thought of Zionist public opinion makers especially those hoping to affect a deep revolution in the lifestyles of the Jews. These people, meaning the Zionist public opinion makers, absorbed more than a little of the anti-Semitic analysis concerning the Jewish past during the years in the diaspora, end quote. Just to give you an idea of the way Herzl and the original Zionists looked at the Jews, we can listen to a eulogy that Vladimir Jabotinsky presented about Theodor Herzl. Jabotinsky was explaining that Herzl was a real Hebrew, an Ivri, which is the code word for Zionist. The Zionists, rather than referring to themselves as Jews, they would refer to themselves as Hebrews. Jews had a religious connotation, while Hebrews had a national connotation. And in those days when the Hebrew, the Zionist personality uh, and nationality was being synthesized, the question people were asking is, what exactly is a Hebrew? Jabotinsky, in his eulogy, answers it, quote, To imagine what a true Hebrew is, to picture his image in our minds, we have no example from which to draw. Instead, we must use the method of Ipchamistavra. Now, Ipchamistavra is a Talmudic term which means learn something from its opposite. Quote, we take as our starting point the Jid of today. Jid was a derogatory term for Jew. We take as our starting point the Jid of today and try to imagine in our minds his exact opposite. 
Let us erase from that picture all the personality traits that are so typical of a jid, and let us insert into it all the desirable traits whose absence are so typical in him. Because the jid is ugly, sickly, and is unhandsome, we will give the ideal image of the Hebrew masculine beauty, stature, massive shoulders, vigorous movements, bright and many shades of color. The jid is frightened and downtrodden. The Hebrew ought to be proud and independent. The jid is disgusting to everyone. The Hebrew should be charming to all. The jid accepts submission. The Hebrew ought to know how to command. The jid likes to hide with bated breath from the eyes of strangers. The Hebrew, with brazenness and with greatness, should march ahead to the entire world, look them straight and deep into their eyes, and hoist before them his banner, I am a Hebrew. And in context, he was saying that Theodore Herzl was so great because he was the exact opposite of a jid. He was the, the exact opposite of a Jew. But don't be surprised that he used a derogatory term for Jew in his eulogy. I mean, the truth is, in those days, it wasn't as derogatory as it was afterwards, but still it was. Herzl did a lot worse. Herzl's greatest disgust and hate was reserved for anti-Zionist Jews. Herzl wrote an essay. It was called Mauschel. Mauschel was a derogatory German nickname for Jews that was used by anti-Semites since the 1600s, and English equivalent would be something like Kike. His essay first appeared in the official Zionist mouthpiece, The World, on October 15, 1897. The anti-Semites claimed that the Jews were an inferior race of human being. Herzl, in turn, claimed that Mauschel was an inferior race of Jew, that these Jews were, quote, unspeakably low and repugnant. Anti-Semites used to refer to Jews as vermin. Herzl referred this way to anti-Zionist Jews. Sander Gilman describes Herzl's essay as, quote, a piece of anti-Semitic horror propaganda. The qualities attributed to Mauschel are the classic attributes of the negative stereotype of the Jew. Following are excerpts from Herzl's essay. Mauschel is an anti-Zionist. We know him well and long, and we always felt disgusted when we saw him. Who is this Mauschel? A type, my dear friends, a being that is met throughout the ages, a terrible companion of the Jews and so inseparable from them that the one is always mistaken for the other. The Jew is a human being. Mauschel, on the other hand, is the antithesis of a human being, something unspeakably degraded and obstinate. The Jew has a heartfelt longing, an unquenchable desire to reach the higher rungs of the ladder of culture. Mauschel, during progress, proceeds with his own dirty business. In poverty, Mauschel is a wretched beggar. When opulent, he becomes a miserable parvenu. The Jew loves art and cultural surroundings. Mauschel deals in art, culture, and the common wheel. The Jew has always had the utmost contempt for Mauschel, who in turn called him a fool. 
and these two, who by their natures were divorced for all times, were even mistaken for each other. Is this not a terrible misunderstanding? This inexplicable contrast, it seems, can only be explained by the commingling at one dark period of our history of a lower mass of people with our nation, which has been absorbed. Mauschel always supplied the reasons for the attacks upon us. But the time, our time came when even discarding his religion could not free the Jew from his kinship to Mauschel. In other words, even though Jews no longer religious, the anti-Semites still, for some reason, persecute them, even though, clearly, the Jews got rid of Mauschel. Let's continue. The reason is, he says, the race, as if Jews and Mauschel belonged to the same race. Of course, it was difficult to prove the contrary. In the eyes of the anti-Semite, the Jew and Mauschel were irretrievably bound together. Then Zionism appeared. The Jew and Mauschel had to define their position. And now, now for the first time, Mauschel did the Jew a moral service of unexpected magnitude. Mauschel divorced himself from the Union because Mauschel is an anti-Zionist. It happens that sometimes earnest friends of our movement remark, the Jews themselves wish to have nothing to do with Zionism. But the Jews? Oh no, only Mauschel doesn't. The Jew cannot be an anti-Zionist. Only Mauschel is that. Well, let him be. This relieves us of him. He's one of the first one of the most benevolent results of our movement. We shall breathe more freely if that stage is reached when we shall have purified ourselves of these degrading elements. Have done with this miserable toleration. We need no longer blush for shame because of Mauschel's tricks. Ah, but are we fools? Well, we're not so insane as to continue to be responsible for Mauschel. Yet more. The enemy shall be treated as an enemy. Down from the pulpit, Mauschel, which you as a protesting rabbi abuse. Get out, Mauschel, of all the representative synagogues of the Jewish people. We shall see how things will fare when we have everywhere proclaimed the boycott against Mauschel. Against this, against Zionism, you struggle, Mauschel. This you desire to prevent by perfidious practices because... There's no immediate profit for you. Have you ever done anything for your brethren? You have distanced them, injured them, and now when they wish to help themselves, you would stay their hands. Now listen to this. Here's the climax and the end of this. Mauschel, take care. Judaism is like William Tell in the legend. When Tell prepared to shoot the arrow from his son's head, he had a second arrow ready. If the first aim should fail... The other shall be the avenger. Friends, the second arrow of Zionism is destined for Mauschel's chest. Let me explain that last line. Herzl is saying that Zionism, like William Tell, has a backup plan in case Zionism doesn't succeed. The second arrow of Zionism is destined for the chest of Mauschel, the Jewish opponents of Zionism. In this essay, Herzl considers the Jewish opponents of Zionism, the Mauschals, to be a, of a different race than the real Jews, to be a disgusting, degraded group of people that are responsible for anti-Semitic persecution 
are to blame for the bad reputation that the Jews have and should be boycotted, marginalized, and kicked out of the Jewish community. Now, by the way, this business of uh, martial anti-Zionist Jews not being from the same race clearly sounds like just rhetoric. But the truth is, Herzl really had a bizarre notion of race. You know, there were Jews like Jabotinsky that believed Jews are a race, with physical racial characteristics. Herzl wasn't one of them. And the reason he believed that Jews are not a race, he says, uh, uh, quote, he, he, was, he was talking about Israel's Angvil. Israel's Angvil is one of the founding fathers of Zionism, you could call him, you know, one of the original architects. And Herzl considers, considered himself very handsome, but Zangville very ugly. So because of that, Herzl considered it unreasonable to suggest that he and Zangville were of the same race. Quote, Israel Zangville is of the long-nosed Negro type with woolly, deep black hair. He too is in favor of our territorial independence. He maintains, however, the racial point of view that, that Jews are a race. This is something I can't accept, for I merely have to look at him and myself. And obviously, they're not from the same race. Herzl's views on Jewish identity. This just begs the question. If Herzl did not believe that the Jews were a race, and Herzl certainly was unreligious, he didn't believe in the Jewish religion at all, what did he believe a Jew is? What makes a Jew a Jew? When the British Royal Commission on Alien Immigration asked Herzl for his definition of a Jewish nation, he said it is a, quote, recognizable historical group of men held together by a common enemy, meaning the anti-Semites. In other words, the definition of a Jew is whoever the anti-Semites hate. He, he, he wrote this elsewhere, too, in the introduction to his book, The Jewish State. He says, quote, We are a nation, one nation. Our enemies have made us one without our consent. Distress binds us together. In other words, besides Herzl having this deep psychological issue in response to anti-Semitism that, that, okay, those Jews are actually what the anti-Semites say they are, but not me. He also believed that the definition of a Jew is somebody who the anti-Semites hate. There is no other common denominator that Jews have, and the Jews are not uh, per se a nationality or a nation or a people at all, except because the anti-Semites made them one. Anti-Semitism makes the Jew. Now, this is a, a dark, sick idea of Jewish identity. And by the way, it's normally attributed to the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, but Herzl preceded him in this. So Herzl grounded the Zionist attitude towards anti-Semitism, which even today is clearly out of sync. I'm talking about the idea that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism and the Pew survey that found out that more Jews said the thing essential to Jewishness more than anything else is remembering the Holocaust, not Jewish 
religion, not Jewish culture, not uh, Jewish values or anything like that, not even being part of a Jewish community. Jewish means more than anything else, remembering the Holocaust. This really unhealthy relationship between Jewish identity and anti-Semitism, which manifests in so many destructive and damaging ways today and is the cause of so much problems in the Zionist community and Zionist ideology, really originated from Theodor Herzl because to him, Jewish identity was actually anti-Semitic. I mean, not only did he dislike Jews, not only did he absorb much of the anti-Semitic tropes, those tropes were the only thing that made him a Jew. And in fact, he had such a bizarre and unhealthy relationship with anti-Semitism that he, he leveraged it and encouraged it in order to get his movement to succeed. Herzl attempted to negotiate with various heads of state to get them to accept Zionism. His sales pitch was fundamentally anti-Semitic. He explained to these leaders that they had an opportunity to be rid of their Jewish populations once and for all, and that should motivate them to accept Zionism. All they had to do was to support his his plan to create a state for the Jews in the Middle East where all Jews in Europe would go. It was a win-win situation, he explained. He encouraged the European nations to believe the anti-Semitic charges that Jews would only be a problem for them and it was best for them to, be rid, them, to rid themselves of their Jews. By doing so, he was able to convince many European leaders to support Zionism. In Herzl's speech at the First Zionist Congress, he explained his plan for the exodus of the Jews from Europe. Quote, he said, When a systematic Jewish migration begins, it will last only so long as each country desires to be rid of its Jews. End quote. Herzl was going to strengthen both Zionism and anti-Semitism so they should work in tandem to meet their common goal, which is emptying the world of Jews and sending them all to Israel. As Herzl explained in several places in his diary, quote, we shall be supported by anti-Semites through a resurgence of persecution. Another place he wrote, it would be an excellent idea to call in responsible accredited anti-Semites as liquidators of property. At first, they must not be given large fees for this. You hear this? He wants to pay them. Otherwise, we'll spoil our instruments and make them despicable as, quote, stooges of the Jews. Later, their fees will increase, and at the end, we will have only Gentile officials in the countries from which we have emigrated. The anti-Semites will become our most dependable friends, the anti-Semitic countries, our allies. Elsewhere, he wrote, I already told you that we want to let respectable anti-Semites participate in our project, respecting their independence, which is valuable to us, as a sort of people's control authority. Elsewhere, he wrote, Anti-Semitism, which is a strong and unconscious force amongst the masses, will not harm the Jews. I consider it a movement useful to the Jewish character. It represents the education of a group by the masses and will perhaps lead to its being absorbed. Education is accomplished only through hard knocks. A Darwinian mimicry will set in. The Jews will adapt themselves. They are like seals, which an act of nature cast into the water. These animals assume the appearance and habits of fish, which they certainly are not. Once they return to dry land again and are allowed to remain there for a few generations, they will turn their fins into feet again. 
Obviously, in enlisting anti-Semitism for his cause, Herzl also fueled it. For a Jew to come and tell heads of state that the Jews are bad for them and he's willing to help get rid of them obviously just encourages and throws fuel on the fires of anti-Semitism. Indeed, the entire Zionist movement was an exercise in besmirching the Jews, their past history, their religion, and their lifestyle. So adding some besmirchment about their value to their countries of residence was just par for the course. Now, somebody may ask, if Herzl really hated being Jewish so much, and he had these, this unhealthy relationship with anti-Semitism, why didn't he just decide he wants to stop being Jewish? And why didn't he just recommend that all Jews convert to another religion, say Christianity? Well, guess what? Here's what Herzl wrote in his diary. About two years ago, I wanted to solve the Jewish question, at least in Austria, with the help of the Catholic Church. I wanted to arrange for an audience with the Pope and say to him, Help us against the anti-Semites, and I will lead a great movement for the free and honorable conversion of the Jews to Christianity. In broad daylight, at 12 o'clock on a Sunday, the exchange of faith would take place in St. Stephen's Cathedral, with solemn parade and the peal of bells, not with shame, as sorry individuals have hitherto gone over, but with a proud gesture. His plan was that Herzl and some other leaders, he considered himself a leader of the Jew, would remain Jewish, but, well, here's what he wrote. Because the Jewish leaders would remain behind, conducting the people only to the threshold of the church and they, they themselves staying outside of it, it would elevate the whole performance to a display of utter sincerity. We, the steadfast leaders, would have constituted the final generation of Jews. We would have remained within the faith of our fathers, but we would have made Christians of our children before they reached the age of independent decision, after which conversion looks like an act of cowardice or calculation. Herzl indeed would have wished the Jews to all convert to Christianity. In fact, he was more Christian than he was Jewish. He celebrated Christmas, did not circumcise his son, who, by the way, later on in his life, Hans, his name was, converted to Christianity. There's an old joke. What's the difference between Herzl and Jesus? <laughs> the answer is, Herzl celebrated Christmas, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Oh, by the way, Herzl's goal for Zionism was the end of anti-Semitism, which obviously was an objective that Zionism never met. In fact, Herzl believed that, well, I'll read it to you. This is on the last page of his book, The Jewish State. It's the climax of the whole manifesto. After he describes the plan to create what he calls a Jewish state, which has no vestiges of Jewish at all, he says, quote, Now, all this may appear to be an interminably long affair. Even in the most favorable circumstances, many years might elapse before the commencement of the foundation of the state. In the meantime, Jews in a thousand different places would suffer insults, mortifications, abuse, blows, depredation, and death, won't they? No, because if we only begin to carry out the plans, 
anti-Semitism will stop at once and forever, for it is the conclusion of peace. In other words, Herzl believed that once Zionism starts, anti-Semitism will end, because everybody will think, ah, now there's no more reason to hate the Jews. So what do you think? You think Zionism was a success, its objective being to end anti-Semitism? So, the first Zionist Congress took place in 1897. What do you think? During the 20th century, between 1897 and today, do you think anti-Semitism suddenly disappeared? If not, if it indeed got worse or just morphed, then Zionism, Herzl's Zionism at least, was based on several delusions and was doomed to be the abysmal failure that it was. So in sum, the Theodor Herzl that Zionist children learn about in their schools all over the world is a fictitious character. The real Theodor Herzl had many complexes about his own Jewishness, was anti-Semitic, hated Eastern European Jews, religious Jews, and anti-Zionist Jews. He believed all the anti-Semitic tropes, but not in regard to himself. Himself, he thought of as a type of a messiah to transform all of the Jews from what he and the anti-Semites believed they were to what he wanted them to be. Thanks for listening to Committing High Reason. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. For the latest from Rabbi Shapiro and to sign up for his newsletter, head on over to committinghighreason.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.